Welcome to The Stellar Woman Show, the podcast, magazine, and video hosted by Stella Olivia Kikoyo. Each week, Stella will be bringing you a guest or a segment from The Stellar Woman magazine, whose mission is to spread thriving global women's stories, expert knowledge, and experiences covering mind, body, and spirit, fashion and beauty, money, business, and leadership, so that you too can be inspired, learn, be empowered, and thrive. Since knowledge is potential power, our aim is to spread it like light from one woman to another, which we believe will help to bring about change in perspectives and create new possibilities for all women to learn, be empowered, and thrive. We know if one woman thrives, her family and community thrive too, and the world becomes a better and brighter world. With over 100 interviews and stories, articles, videos, surveys, real life and business lessons and trainings, we believe that there's no better women's classroom as the Stellar Woman Show and Magazine. Stella and her guests will be exploring how they started, the dreams realized and unrealized, aspirations, the steps taken, the challenges, failures, lessons learned, decision-making process, and what made them successful, and the stellar woman that they are. For more information, check out the website, www.stellarwomanmag.com. Now, here's your host, Stella Olivia Kikoyo. Hello, welcome to the Stella Woman Magazine. My name is Stella Olivia Kikoyo, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Stella Woman Magazine. Stella Woman Magazine is here to bring you thriving women's stories, knowledge, and experiences so that you too can learn one or two things, be inspired, change, and thrive in your life. We're here to bring you light, spread this light so that you can tap into this light and use it into your life. We believe that we are changing one woman's perspective at a time. And as we brighten up one woman's life, we know that the families will be brightened, uh, communities and the world at large. So today we are really privileged, thrilled and honored to be having Tina Baker. Tina, thank you for joining us here on the Stella Woman Magazine show. Thank you for having me, Stella. <laughs> yes. So Tina is many things. She is a legal and business consultant. She is um, a singer and a songwriter. She's due to, um, I think you've already released your new, uh, one of your new singles, that's Jazzy Cessation. Yeah, and uh, Tina has da- done a lot of things, especially in the legal profession. She has spent 20 years as an advisor on uh, different perspectives, but mainly on global tech companies. And uh, she's a co-founder, tech law firm, Jack Shaw Baker. She co-founded the tech law firm in 2013. And this law firm was acquired by Withers and rebranded as Withers Tech farm in 2018. So there's a lot that we're going to learn from Tina as a stellar woman. And this particular issue is about decision making. And we can see from all these perspectives, from all her experiences, there's a lot of decisions being made. We all make decisions every single day. We are making decisions, but there are those fundamental decisions that really change the course of your life journey. So we are going to 
hear from Tina herself. So welcome again, Tina. And we're going to start by you telling us more, apart from what we've just said here, or for you to broaden up what we've, um, what I've just introduced here, is who is Tina Baker? Boy, <laughs> what a question. Well, I'm a person who is, um, I'm American. I've lived in uh, the UK for 20 years. I'm back in the US now. I started my life in Brooklyn, New York and grew up there, which I think is one of the best places in the world to grow up, although I wouldn't want to live there now. I spent most of my childhood involved in music. I feel really fortunate to have grown up in the 60s and have been exposed to what was actually a revolution in music. I, I believe the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, all of the rock and roll, Led Zeppelin, my heroes. And I was always involved in theater and things like that. But um, I, I ended up going to college at a place in Massachusetts called Hampshire College, which has some stellar alumni, um, uh, Nupita Luongo, who is that wonderful, wonderful actress, is, a, is an alumni, and Ken Burns, who was a very good friend of mine. And I'm still in touch with um, the amazing documentarian and Robert Epstein, also an amazing documentarian. But um, Hampshire was a place where the motto for Hampshire was to know is not enough, non sata scire. And it's, it's an entrepreneurial type of place. So even though I spent a lot of time at Hampshire working on music, I also got very involved in the politics there. And I ran for and was elected a student trustee, which I served on a two-year term. And there was a lot of turmoil there. I was a financial aid student. And um, a lot of my friends were financial aid students. I always laugh. You can always tell the financial aid students they're very well-dressed. And the rest of the students are wearing ripped-up clothes because they don't want people to know they're rich. But during that whole process, I had a friend who said, you know, you'd make a really good lawyer. You should go to law school. And I I ended up marrying that person. And um, <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of times, like I'd never wanted to be a lawyer. I just always wanted to be a singer and an actress. And but I'd had some I've I'd had some issues with it. Um even though it was always my passion, I I felt emotionally held back. I had a very traumatic childhood. There was a lot of abuse, neglect, and which was very typical of those times when I was growing up. I think one of the things that is really interesting, if you look generationally, you know, my parents did the best they could, but they never would have thought about going into therapy as adults, even though they might have been unhappy. Whereas now it's pretty typical for people to seek ways to make themselves more happy other than just making money. And because we all know money doesn't lead to happiness at all. There's a certain threshold. If you're below that threshold, it can make you unhappy, but having loads of money doesn't never make you happy. Uh, but also they, they would not think to have their children engaged in, in any kind of therapeutic activities, which is now very common. So, you know, I've been struggling with lifelong issues of, of self-worth, self-esteem. And, and so it held me back as a performer. And so I was having issues with that in college, especially I, um, I was in a band, they threw me out, you know, it was all just like partially because I smoked too many cigarettes, which, you know, for singers is just ridiculous. 
Um, but I had an addictive behavior um, problem, which I still do, which is very, you know something we can talk about as we go on. But I lived in a household with five adults, four of whom were smoking. So, and my mother was smoking when she was pregnant with me. So I think I was probably born addicted to nicotine. Uh, so, so at any rate, I said, hey, you know, I'll consider law school. So I went to law school. Um, before that, I worked in uh, politics in Boston for a year absolutely hated it um somehow got involved with this thing that was run by the republican party and it just was not good so um i i went to law school got married to this person from hampshire college called arthur baker hence the baker and we ended up moving to new york after law school which is where i'm from because arthur wanted to be a record producer and i told him you need to be in New York. And he wanted to stay in Boston, which is where he was from. But I said, big fish, small pond, you can't do this. And so we moved to New York and he became incredibly successful. So while that was happening, he had me singing with him because I, you know, I, we wrote some songs, we were doing all this stuff. And um, while I was a lawyer, I recorded a single with um, Africa Bambata called Jazzy Sensation. And it was the first record on Tommy Boy Records. That's when I got named Tina B because I rapped and sang and I was in the studio. I remember it was, I remember this, it was like two o'clock in the morning, right? And I had to work the next day. And, I, and we were just like, okay, my name is Tina B and I come to say, I need my music in a jazzy way. So yeah, and it was so much, it was, it was fun. So you know, that record was not humongously successful, but it started me on a, on a journey of recording. And uh, then I joined a group called Rocker's Revenge that Arthur had put together with these two brothers and one of their girlfriends. Uh, the two brothers worked in a record store in Brooklyn near where we were living at the time. And we did a remake of Eddie Grant's song, Walking on Sunshine. Not the one that everyone knows. It's, you're mine, you're mine, you're walking on sunshine. And so that song became a number four pop record in England. It was a number one dance record in America. And we we never made it over to England, which I think was a big reason that our careers as a group didn't go on. But um we were gigging all the time and I was going to work. I mean, it was, it was really, I was a young lawyer, you know, and I was working really long hours. So it was, uh, it was really incredible. So, but once Arthur started making a lot of money, we just looked at each other and I said, can I quit my job? And he said, yeah. So, and we, we opened a recording studio. I, I put it all together. So I, I was helping him with businesses. We were doing our stuff. And then he got me signed as a solo artist. So that's how the whole thing started for me. I have him to really thank. I, uh, I supported him while he was trying to get his career going. And then once he got it going, he supported me as an artist. And even though our marriage didn't last, our friendship did. And I think part of the reason, well, there's two reasons for that. One is we were friends for several years before we started seeing each other romantically. And then also, I think we saw the value. It, it, I don't know. It's, it's sort of, we became family. I just, it, it just didn't make sense to not be friends, especially because we didn't leave, we didn't leave each other on, you know, sometimes when people get really hurt, they want to hurt the other person, but it was more like, okay, this was time for us to move on. 
it, it, it worked out. It's, it's worked out kind of okay. I mean, it's, it's, it has its challenges, but um, anyway, so, so we still work together and we were doing things. And, and so I spent most of the 1980s doing music, all of it actually, ex uh, except for the first couple of years when I was working as a lawyer. And during that time, I was an amazing career in, in the sense I wasn't like, I wasn't making huge amounts of money, but I was singing backup for all sorts of people, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen. I sang with U2. I went on tour with Little Steven, who was in the E Street Band. I wrote songs for people like Jeff Beck. Uh, and I had songs in movies. And I was in a movie called Beat Street, which is, it's so funny to me how so many people love that film. I, I remember when it came out, I thought it was the worst movie I ever saw. <laughs> but it's it's a classic uh, break. It's a breakdance movie. I mean, and it was produced by Harry Belafonte. I think I'm in the movie as myself singing a song, which a lot of people really still love. I mean, it's crazy for me. Like I have tons of fans out there now from my hip hop dance music phase. Yeah. <laughs> and then towards the end of the eighties, I got signed by A&M records and I did a pop album, which I love it's on Spotify. I, I own it now. I got the rights to it back. It never got released. Um, A&M Records was an independent label that was founded by Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. And it was probably the last big independent label. Sting was on A&M, Janet Jackson. I mean, it was a great Cat Stevens, really good roster of artists. Um, they sold the label to Polygram. It got folded in to Universal and then they just closed it. So everyone got dropped. They closed the label. I mean, it still exists, but it's not really what it was. So a lot of things happened to me at that point, And I don't think I want to talk about them here, but I ended up going back to work as a lawyer after that happened because I just, I wanted to keep going, but I was very much in debt and I was scared and the music business was very unfriendly to females. Um, I found that when I was married to Arthur, everything was fine. You know, he protected me. He pushed me forward. Once that was gone, it was really horrible. So I had a lot of issues right then and there. So I, and I was sexually assaulted by someone. So it was all just, okay. This is really nasty. And I um, I stopped singing for about a year. And I was working at this law firm and I was doing life science IPOs, which I actually loved. Uh, it was, I, the sciences were great. And this, I, I did four public offerings for a gene therapy company, which took years. And I mean, now we have gene therapy. Actually, one of the coronavirus vaccines is a gene therapy vaccine. And there is uh, gene therapy in some therapeutics now becoming marketable. This, these companies were way before their time, um, but this was pre-internet. So it's, it's what one of our clients said that investors want the blue sky and the hereafter. Yes. And, and yeah. So they invest in things that look like they're going to be, ooh. And so gene therapy and, and all sorts of other molecular, bio, biological uh, technology companies. So I was doing that and I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this opera aria going through my head because uh, during the 80s, I just immersed myself in all, everything. I saw every opera. I saw Pavarotti in live like six times 
Amazing. Like I just, I loved opera. I love, I love all kinds of music except kind of country Western, but um, other than that, I love everything. Right. Including heavy metal. I just love, I mean, so I, I just thought I wake up in the middle of the night, I got this opera already going through my head. And I decide I'm going to become an opera singer. So I did. <laughs> it was wow. just, wow. I know. Wow. Now what was really weird about it though, is I was already in my thirties is very late to start singing opera. And I had, I was thinking about going into some programs, but they, I was over the age limit. Like you have to be in your twenties really to start training for this. And so I studied at Juilliard on the weekend in the adult education program for uh, opera. And the conductor who ran that also had an opera company. So I joined his opera company and I did workshop performances of La Boheme and La Traviata. And he said to me, you know, if you're going to do any kind of career, you have to come at it a different way. You're not, you know, no one's going to hire you to be in any companies. And I was like, okay. So I started recording opera dance music with friends of mine from the dance scene. <laughs> And uh, as you do, and I eventually uh, partnered up with this guy who's now really successful doing music for video games, An incredible musician, Tom Salta is his name. And we we wrote a whole album of stuff based on music from dead people, you know, like Mozart. And and uh, it was phenomenal, this record. And it was, some of it was produced by Philippe Sace, who's a Grammy winning jazz guy. And he's still around. He's still working. He just wrote a song with Nile Rodgers. And um, so we almost got signed twice. And, you know, it's the age old story for the music business. And so at this point, I sort of had was winding down as we're in the late 90s. I was start I, I quit my law job. I was working part time just as a consultant, just to make some money. After the two deals with Tom didn't pan out, I had a manager then who was a heavy metal guy. It's my my opera teacher in London. He called opera singing sophisticated screaming. <laughs> very very cool. And he used to call me Scarici. He used to call me Scarici. That was my nickname. I loved that because I loved I loved hitting the high notes. That's all I want. I lived for. So. <laughs> So, and now I'm, I'm a, I am I just started a rock band. So we'll get to that later, but I just started it. We're singing Back in Black by ACDC, which, I mean, you want to talk about screaming, but I love it. It's amazing. So anyway, um, he introduces me to this producer in London who had just worked with an opera singer and was doing an album with him. So I ended up moving to London as, and that's why it was because of this project I was going to do with this producer in, in London, which didn't happen when I moved. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, I, I tell people you always, in most cases in the music industry, if someone says to you, let's do this, let's do this. It never happened. It and it's not that they don't mean it. It's just shit happens and they mean it at the time and then whatever happens and it doesn't happen. So, uh, but to tell someone to move continents, to work with you. And then when you get there to just sort of say, you know what, I, I got, I don't got time for this. Um, it was pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Now at this point, Arthur Baker had moved to London, so he was already there. So, so he helped me out, find some place to live. And I ended up living near one of the people I'd worked with in the nineties, who was also English. So I kind of had a circle of people and I was started doing some music there with other people. I met this guy, we ended up living together for six years. We tried to do some recording, but it, none of it really clicked. So I was performing as an opera singer twice a month. I had a gig 
And I was working at a US law firm in London. And, and so this, we're looking at 2000. So what happens then? They hired me because I had all this IPO experience and they were working with European tech companies that were IPOing in the US. Well, come 2000, you've got internet crash. You've got Enron, which made listing in the US much more difficult. And then you had 9-11. And so basically nobody wanted to list in the US markets from abroad. It just was too difficult. So that whole work stream dried up. So we started just going to networking events, holding networking events. And I started to meet everyone who was in venture capital in London and large parts of Europe. Uh, and then when stuff started to come back, we had clients. It was, it was amazing how that, okay. you know, I always say, say this, I mean, I, I don't know that, if, that what's to learn from this really, but timing is everything. And I always felt like I've had really poor timing in my life, except for this. <laughs> Because we we taught we were there at the right moment to become known to all, and there were, at that point in time there weren't that many lawyers in London who did venture capital, and also I was both U.S. and U.K. qualified, and I think that the the tech companies and the investors appreciated that because everyone had their eye on the US. They all wanted to either IPO or get acquired by some massive US company. Uh, and so having lawyers who understood the, the nuances of both legal systems, which are very similar, by the way, because they're both based on common law, which common law being court uh, precedent. So most of Europe is what's called civil law, which is their laws are codified. They're written into statutes. So you have to follow and know the statutes. And so law changes very slowly in the civil law countries because you have to have a whole legislative, whereas you can just go to court. I mean, you see what just happened in the U.S. All of a sudden, abortion is not a constitutional right. It happened in five minutes, right? Mm, you know, <laughs> And they can't legislate that for years. So obviously having a common law system makes a much more fluid legal system. Uh, so, so being that the US and the UK are both common law, it's easy to know both legal systems pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. we became now doing both things together that you, you said about how do you handle both? Unfortunately for me, and fortunately for me, I couldn't not sing. So even if I had, except for that one blip after I'd been sexually assaulted and I just like stopped singing for a short minute, um, I couldn't not sing. So I'd have a, I found a teacher. I, I've had singing lessons most of my adult life. Oh. I still, I still have a voice coach. I have a lesson almost every week. Still, I practice almost every day. Wow. Yeah. So when I was in, but I, when I was working full time and I was very busy, I couldn't necessarily practice every day, but I would have a lesson at least once a week. I would practice at least twice a week. So I, I would have at least some kind of structure. Okay, let's look at the reality of life here. You know, you as a mother know this, right? You you have to have, you have schedules of where you have to take your kids when, and you fit your exercise, for instance, 
around that. Yeah. You, yeah. So I did the same thing. It was like, okay. It was also with exercising. Cause of course, you know, that's something you have to keep doing too. Cause it's without exercise, you can really let yourself go. So, you know, I would schedule practices like, okay, put them in the calendar. Right. And, and I w- would not miss a lesson unless I was deathly ill. Plus I was also performing still. So I think partially having something to motivate you does help. Um, It is more. So I, I found those things, but that, that, so that, that's, what's critical about it is that through most of my life, I have tried to make something so that I could keep doing it. Right. Like finding something that was okay now I have a reason to keep practicing I've got new music to learn uh because otherwise if you're just like oh I like singing and I'm not singing anywhere and I have nothing it's much harder to motivate yourself so I created the motivation all right so during this time and what's interesting what I found is with very few exceptions most of the clients that I got were so I, I don't know what the word is, but they were so impressed that I was also this singer. Occasionally I would hear people say, really? Do you, you know, how do you take, how do we take you seriously? And I was like, okay, you're not, you're not, you're not the client for me. And these were always men. These were always, <laughs> of course, you know, oh, and unfortunately in the tech world, it's getting better now. And, you know, we have a lot more female founders and a lot more female VCs, but at the beginning, there was hardly any, you know, I used to go to these things. I'd be the only woman, woman in the room. There were hardly any women lawyers in the corporate field. You find them in family law, employment exactly. law, wills. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There were very few women in venture capital and corporate. And also there were very few VCs and very few tech founders that were women. So, but having this passion about singing was seen as a plus by most of the clients that I had. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Many, many people, many lawyers and many, many people in business also play music. It's, it's, uh, it's good for the brain, the practicing, the discipline, and also just uh, music is math. So, you know, it's, it has impact on your neural circuits. So it, it's, it's a good thing for success. Uh, you know, I had several clients and I, you know, some of them are still friends like, um, Perry Jorgen Parson, who is one of the North Zone founders who, uh, invested in Spotify. He and I were in a band together. So he's a heavy metal guitarist but he's one of the most successful VCs out there. And George Coelho, who is a really good friend. I was in a band with him. There's so many VCs. So I started getting into VC bands. I was in two different VC bands and we had gigs. I mean, up until I left London, I was gigging with one of them. So I I found things for myself to do to keep the music going. And it also kept me from going crazy from being a lawyer. That was good. That was good, Tina. Thank you so much. You've answered, you've helped to answer a lot of questions, how you integrate uh, both careers and how you move into love, but you brought it out 
very well. I wanted to know now um, is what key skill have you seen? Oh, you've talked about the fact that actually this discipline in music and all of that, this mathematics and all of those as key skills that you can transfer into law. You need the discipline that you're practicing as a musician. So yeah. yeah, I wanted to see the skill sets that you can see in both careers as a lawyer and yeah. as a musician, yes. Okay, well, what's interesting, so the biggest one is focus, okay? Because one of the great things about music is it's, it's you very focused when you're practicing and when you're performing. You really focus, right? It's a great skill. And I find mostly when I do my legal stuff, I'm incredibly focused and I spot the stuff immediately. So that that's one thing. The other thing, though, is that because you are doing something that's artistic, you've got a bunch of subconscious things happening that you're not necessarily aware of, which this is what I think has an effect on the brain. And it just it opens things up a little bit. So especially for me for songwriting, because I don't think that these things are related necessarily, but I'm a, I'm a really good conceptual thinker. And I'm also a really good conceptual songwriter. So if you give me an idea, like, for instance, the song we wrote for Beat Street, it's going to be in this scene. This is what the scene is about. I was like five minutes. I had lyrics. It, it ended up not being used in that scene, by the way. I ended up performing it myself in an audition. But I have a really good sense of that. Um, and conceptually, for, for legal, it's like, one of, I mean, I, I am a good technical lawyer. It's not, I'm not saying that I'm not because I know the laws relating to what I do, but venture capital is not as regulation heavy as some other areas of law, like tax law, for instance. And I wouldn't want to do that because it's too specific. I like being in a situation where it's more conceptual what are we trying to achieve here? And what, what are the tools we have? It's more like brush strokes than ding, 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 ding. And I think that's my nature, okay, which makes me, I mean, and I don't know, I don't know if people believe in this stuff, but, you know, I'm a Libra. That's my astrological sign. And the strongest aspects of Libra are love of art and beauty and the scales of justice. Here I ended up being on both sides of the thing. I, I, I don't know if that's accidental. I'm a Libra as well. What's, what's your birthday? Best, 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 best astrological sign. Both my parents were Libras too. Oh, um, I know, I know. It's crazy, right? Um, and they were both very artistic. It's so funny. Um, unfortunately, neither one of them pursued. But um, September 24th. Okay. What's yours? And 17th of October. <laughs> yeah, happy belated birthday. <laughs> Same to you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I love how you brought all of that out in terms of the skill set. And I could see what you mean, why you're not a tax lawyer and why you are in venture cup. So I think the, the creativity aspect, the artist in you is comes out more... Right. Yeah, and it's also more of a people 
business as opposed to other things. But 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 as well, like so many of my clients I became friendly with and I'm still close to so many of them. And they call me up and ask me all sorts of questions, you know, just what do you think about this? What do you think about that? It's not necessarily just legal, although I have found it hard to establish any other career advising people like that because, well, if you want to talk about decisions, we can, uh, I, I can sort of bring this in because I, I know you want to ask me questions and I'm just answering them without you asking them. But um, generally speaking, I've made decisions based on a feeling. So how did I start Jack Shaw Baker? Why did I start Jack Shaw Baker? Okay. So I, I was at a law firm that, um, you know, um, and I was miserable there and they were very nasty to women and they didn't treat me well. And so with every relationship, you know, once it's over, like something shuts down in you. Um, so that by the time they offered me equity partnership, it was just too late. I couldn't see myself being with that group of people. It just wasn't. So I, I went out, out there and I started looking around for other jobs and, and I had two offers from two other law firms to become an equity partner there in London, U.S. firms. And then my former partner, James Shaw, who had been at the old firm I was at, um, he had started his own firm a few years earlier and he was doing well. Um, and he kept on calling me, come and join me, come and join me, come and join me. And I was scared. And but what hit me was, what's the worst thing that can happen? How did I come to that thought? Very interesting, because this is really, it's its a very normal thought to have, right? Except it wasn't coming up in my brain. How did it come up in my brain? And this is what I love about sort of the fortuitousness of life or the randomness of life. I was reading a book by Tim Ferriss <laughs> called The 4-Hour Workweek, yeah, which, <laughs> which is a joke if you're a lawyer. Like, okay. I mean, I don't know why I was reading it. Something drew me to that book. Even though I knew there was no way in hell I could ever have a four-hour work week if I was a lawyer, but I wanted to read this book anyway, okay? I liked his approach. I start to read it, and he starts talking about quitting your job and starting something on your own and what's the worst that can happen. And then as I read that, it was like, bing! And I was in the middle of talking to James and and also entertaining these other offers. And so that's why I said, what's the worst that happen? I'll get another job. Duh, right? Like I'm pretty marketable. I've got tons of clients. Like what, what am I afraid of? Mm-hmm. And so we started Jack Shaw Baker. And for a while, it was huge amount of fun. Um, but unfortunately, was with, as with all businesses, you reach a critical point in your growth where you either have to, you have to either continue growing or downsize. And so that's why we did the deal with Withers. But um, most of the decisions I've made in my life have been non-decision. That, that was a specific decision to start Jag Shaw Baker. And to join with Withers was also a specific decision based on doing an actually doing a business planning analysis and understand, you know, we hired a consultant who helped us with that. Uh, we did our wish list. We did a five. I mean, seriously, we did the whole thing as if we were just a regular company wow. and it became apparent to us. We either had to a downsize B 
grow. How do you grow? You grow either organically, which we had done up to that point, but we realized we had 45 people at that point. We couldn't continue to grow organically. We needed more cash. So how do you get more cash? You either borrow it, take equity, or you get acquired. And while we're having this conversation, Withers calls us. So I, even though I do believe that we had decided to join Withers, it's really interesting how most of the time, when even when you've sort of, maybe it's because we had were ha- that that the universe brought them to us, just yeah. like the universe brought the Jack Shaw Baker opportunity to me. The universe brought me this pr- producer who did not come through, but put me in London where X, Y, and Z happened. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No so only, no, I. I I'm not a huge believer that I have any control over my life. Like yes. I don't believe I have any control over my life. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. No you know, it's uh, it. Even though we all, and I, I'm still, I'm still guilty of this. I still try to do all these things to try to take control and make everything safe, and you know, and I think that comes from my trauma background more than anything. On some level, making decisions is not really a conscious process because there's all these other forces going on. Yeah. As you're thinking about the strategic approach from um, the law firm, how the offer comes to you and then. Yeah. yeah. Because, because yeah, you, you could say, okay, we're going to do this. And then you go out and you try to find it and you don't find it. Yes. Like how many times does that happen? And then it comes to you. So yes, uh, yeah. I mean, without things. without timing, strategy is is not necessarily going to get you very far. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's that's... more about making decisions is about being open to those opportunities to come to you, right? Exactly. So does that mean that you have both approaches? Because there's a time when you had to do all that analysis and planning. But at the same time, you uh, you like the intuition aspect. Yeah, I love that, which is why like I'll never do internet dating. I, I shouldn't say never because whenever I say never, I always go and do whatever I said I'd never do. But okay, why I haven't done it because I love the magic of just meeting somebody. It, it it to me, it's it's always been like, oh my god, how did that happen? Right? Yeah. <laughs> And and it's it's cool. Um, I, I don't I don't like the calculated aspect for certain things in your life. Mm-hmm. But you know that there are so so there are decisions and there are decisions. Like for instance, I I had this apartment that I I bought in 2018 that had tenants in it. It was in Florida. Why did I buy it? Like, you know, I I wasn't you know. So it's a long story. I won't take time on this interview about why I bought this apartment, and where it is, and all that, but. You know, that decision was a very weird decision. And I'm not, I wasn't exactly sure why I made it, but then it became clear later. So, and, wow. and then the wow. actual, the actual process of doing things here, I make something been making, you know, day-to-day decisions. I find really easy if they're, you know, how do you do, what do you put in the bathroom? All this like decorating, a lot of planning, strategy, that stuff. I I love that stuff, and I'm really good at that. I don't necessarily apply that to the big things in life. 
<laughs> and I know some people do. Yes. Some people calculate to a whole yeah. analysis of even a partner they are going to marry. It's a whole. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if that works for them, great. But to me, you know, it takes the magic out of life. And I just. I think you want some magic in your life. Yeah, yeah. not for I me. that happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's not for me. Yes. Yeah, so the magic of how did I end up here? And how did, how did I end up in London? And then I met that guy. And then, you know, all it's like, and then I became like one of the most sought after venture capital lawyers. Like you couldn't make the shit up. If, who who would have thought that I would have been that? Exactly. Right? Exactly. So it, it, growing up as this, you know, fat kid in Brooklyn who belted, you know, rock and roll songs. <laughs> Exactly. That's amazing. Amazing. So let us take you back as a co-founder and uh, running the law firm. Um, tell us what that take, because I believe the, the partners, your partners were men. Was there another woman? There were three of us. So, but it was James and his wife. Oh, and right. Yes. She, she was the managing partner and she handled all the admin stuff. Unfortunately, she had some things happen and, uh, we only had her for about a year and a half. And then James and I pretty much split up her duties. She's now a, an entrepreneur doing very well. So even though it was just James and I, out of the 45 people we had, 30 something of them were women. So we, we were very heavily weighted towards women in the firm, both lawyers and marketing, every, yeah, all, all you know, our CFO, woman i mean we we hired the best person for the job we weren't necessarily out there looking for women and we but we did we had a lot of women and so there was no decisions made though to i mean we we tried to hire more people of color but that uh you know we did try but there just weren't that many candidates looking for jobs in our type of a firm we had yeah. we had a few um yes but not as many as we wanted yeah Although you had the conscious decision, yes. Um, so what type of leadership style do you have? Well, um, I was always the one that, so, you know, I James was dad and I was mom. And, you know, if James said no, they'd come to me. That happened a lot. Um, <laughs> no, well, one of the things I did, which is not necessary, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I led by example. Mm-hmm. You look so, that's very good. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. So if, if, if I was expecting people to work late, I was there. I was in the office with them. I never made people do something I wouldn't do. And I tried really hard to train people in my style or whatever I thought was appropriate for them if I saw that. Because, you know, I had several roles there. I was a lawyer. I was actually doing legal work but I was also very responsible for the business development. I brought in a lot of the clients and I organized a lot of events with clients and potential clients, industry players. And so I would bring people with me to events so they could observe what I did. Um, and then I would be always be always be available if they needed help or had questions. So that was that was another thing. So I was leading by example, and I was making myself very available because I know that a lot of people voice frustration when they can't get access to their manager or 
you know, whoever's they're trying to do the work with, right? It's, it's, it's a horrible feeling. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you can't finish what you're doing because you need feedback or you, you feel a little out of your depth or whatever it is. And, and um, so I, I, and I also was always, always bringing people around and trying to prop them up as opposed to I'm, this is my show and this is, these are my minions, which a lot of people do that in many fields. You see that a lot in the legal profession too. You see some of these partners and they just, you know, they have these huge egos, like, come on, you're just a lawyer. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. Um, Tim, can I take you back to something? Um, you mentioned you had fear before co-founding um, the firm. Um, I wanted to know, after you made that decision, how did that make you feel? And did it change how you approached decisions thereafter? Okay, well, when I made the decision, I felt relieved, okay? Um, and I, I, I felt optimistic, but I also was being realistic. I said, okay, so... I mean, fortunately, I didn't have any non-competition clauses from my prior firm. So I had a feeling most of the clients would come with me, but I didn't know that, right? Um, and so I thought, okay, so I just have to brace myself, maybe cut back on buying stuff, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, but I just took a very measured approach to calling people and I just went about a very, this is something I'm very good at is planning and sort of mapping out ways to get to something. Again, is what we were talking about. You know, I made lists, I made sure I checked them off that I called everybody. Um, and, and yeah, and then with James talked about what we needed to have in the firm in order to do the work. I have to tell you, I, I I hit the ground running as that phrase goes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have one day where it was like I had no work to do. And by by the end of six months, we were pretty much, we were up to 10 people. Wow. We were up to 10 people wow. at wow. the end of six months. So yeah. Um it, it felt it felt good. Um and and it continued from there. I mean, it was it, yeah. It's fun having your own firm. Uh, it yes. really is. But but it's also, it, it then gets difficult when you have, low, I mean, I don't want to go into the specifics and talk about people because people will know who I'm talking about. So, yeah. But, but it became difficult managing the varying personalities and interests we had in the firm. And it became obvious to me that that was not my strength. Okay. I was not meant to, I was meant to be a leader of individual people in terms of I'm a great mentor and I can help people with their lives, but actually running the firm, I, I wasn't enjoying that Didn't at all. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, if everything went smoothly, I would enjoy it, but that's not life. No, <laughs> that's true. It's not life. And so, you know, some, there's always issues and you look at them and go, okay, what do I do about this? And there were many issues that were coming up where I tried and I didn't know what to do about them and I couldn't do anything about them. So, yeah, I, I think um, each, each 
phase in life brings out something that teaches us something about ourselves. You find right. out more about yourself. Yeah. yeah, your fears, your capabilities, your strength, something you didn't know you're stronger, then you discover it, something you're weaker, you discover that. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, so each position or each phase just puts yeah. you in a new uh, yeah. position to discover more about yourself. Yeah, because I never actually saw myself as running a business. So exactly. once I, and even though I did run, I ran small businesses with my ex-husband, Arthur. I mean, it was just the two of us running a recording studio. Very different, right? From running other people's lives and everything. Yeah, you know, having like, you have to have re performance reviews and then you yeah. got people wow. who are not pulling their weight or calling yeah. themselves, you know, yeah. and then, you know, you got to call the lawyer all the time and, I, and uh, it, it just became anyway. But yeah. Too much, yeah, more than you wanted to. Okay. It wasn't Thank fun you. for me it's, and it's not my strong suit. So I was wasting my time in a way, which was why when the Withers thing happened, I was pretty happy. But whatever, what happened after that is quite interesting. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it didn't last there very long. Um, no, no, okay. no, but it, 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 when you want to talk about decisions, this was a very interesting one. So, um, I had an opportunity to submit a song for a film while I was still working at Withers. And so I, I called my old partner who I wrote songs with in the eighties and was my best song collaborator. I love this guy. I'm still friends with him. We are still writing. And, and we wrote a song and we submitted it to this film. Now it didn't get accepted, but that's okay. It was just, holy shit, I could still write songs. So I decided six months after joining Withers that I, life was too short. I didn't have a lot of time left on the planet and I was going to go back to singing and songwriting full time. I had some money saved, you know, not enough to support me for the rest of my life, but enough for a few years to just be able to just do what I wanted. So I quit. They were pissed. They were really not happy with me. And I, you know, I, I, I in a way, I didn't really think it through. Um, it might have been slightly impulsive, but again, it was another book that I read. So have you ever read um, A Little Life? Yeah. It's it's by this woman called Hanya Kanagahara. She it, it won awards. It's being made into a TV series. Wow! Yeah, I'm and it's really about it. these four friends who went. It, the book is like this big. Uh, <laughs> it's not a little book. Um, so this guy, it's about four friends who from college and what happens to them in their lives. Yeah, and one of them was uh, an orphan who was raised by monks. And he was sexually abused by them and touted out as a prostitute to make money for the monastery. And he ends up becoming like the managing partner of this really high powered law firm in New York. Right. And he's got all of these physical issues. By this point, he's in a wheelchair. His spine has degenerated like no, no shit from a life like that. Right. And um, one of the friends says to him, his name is Jude, Jude, like, man, you're so wealthy now. Why don't you just retire? You don't need to work anymore. You're driving yourself into the ground. And Jude says, work is the only place I feel safe. And when I read that, something in me went, and the tears just started rolling down my face. And the next morning I decided to resign. Now, obviously my life is not as bad as Jude's. <laughs> No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, 
But it made me reflect on the fact that, yeah, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'm a, still a lawyer. I'm, I'm working right now. I'm back at Withers so I can get there. But I enjoy practicing law. It's a great job. I mean, God, like, you know, what a great job to be able to have in terms of, you know, using your mind, people respecting you, you know, not being like paid $5 an hour, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I realized that I'd been hiding a lot yeah. and, and that it was time. I didn't have much time left and I, I needed to stop hiding, mm -hmm. which is why I decided to quit. Even, even though I was saying, okay, I'm going to focus on music and, and writing full time. It wasn't just that it was more like I wanted to work on myself full time, not yeah. And, and of course, that's what ended up happening because six months after I quit, we went into lockdown. So, so everything I was planning on doing was not happening. Nothing. Right. I had a bunch of things on the going on. Rockers Revenge had gotten back together. We had all this stuff booked. It all got canceled. I was going to be doing this and that all got canceled. Everything canceled nothing right so what did i do i and you know if, if you told me that was going to happen i wouldn't have quit the job because i could have been sitting in my house making money doing nothing <laughs> i was just sitting in my house spending money doing nothing right but no i wasn't doing nothing so i spent a lot of time working on myself doing various you know meditation i do a i do a thing called feldenkrais which is awareness through movement I was doing one or two lessons every day and I'm still taking singing lessons on, on Zoom. And I was writing on Zoom. So I, I kept my hand in it. But by the time we basically, I mean, I ended up leaving the UK because I was just so isolated there and I needed to be near my family. And it just, so, so first of all, what, what did the pandemic teach us? We have no control over anything, right? Yes. Yeah. And how quickly your life can just be upended. And the people who did the best were the people who were surrounded by a support system. And I had none. And so it made me leave the UK because even though I have a lot of friends in the UK, I realized no family, I was alone. And so even though I'm not in love with Florida, <laughs> no. most of my family is <laughs> Well, it's a very redneck state and the, I mean, the weather is good six months out of the year. So if, if I was wealthy enough, I would have somewhere else to go for the other six months. Yeah. The last four months I've barely left my house. It's too hot outside. Ooh. I don't like the heat. So some people love it. I don't. You don't. I don't cold either. So I'm just not, I'm not, but yeah. So, you know, moving here was a very, emotional so leaving the UK, leaving the job was incredibly emotional decision definitely not made by weighing the pros and cons no cons no <laughs> good and i thought it was so so good that you mentioned that i was i thought it was no it was another one what's the worst that'll happen exactly except that the what's the worst that'll happen is very different for me now so I'm a lot older than I was before, you know, Jack Shaw Baker was 10 years ago and most law firms won't hire someone as old as I am. So I'll just get another job. It's not just such an easy thing to say. Mm. Yeah. I could get a job working at Target 
Um, it's it's not an easy thing. So yeah. So I I basically decided to just do whatever I feel like doing, and it's led me to some interesting places. Yes. Very good. Um, so you've been able to show us different examples, situations of decision-making, intuition, same evaluation and strategic planning, and some emotional, really emotional decisions where someone might think it was more of a rational decision was actually an emotional influence there. Yeah. 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 Oh, great. Thank you very much. This conversation continues to so look out for part two in the next episode. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us on the Stellar Woman Magazine and show's mission to spread thriving women's stories, knowledge, and experiences so that you too can learn one or two things, be inspired, empowered to change, and thrive. We change one woman at a time. This, we believe, will help to make the world a better and brighter world. I hope today's episode inspired you to change perspective see new possibilities, and take action so that you can become the stellar woman that you would like to be. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to go to the Stellar Woman Show and Magazine website for transcripts and more. Also, please remember to subscribe, review, and share with others, and follow us on all social media platforms. Have a great day. We look forward to catching up with you on the next episode.